Hello and welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. This is episode number 220. Mm, goodness. Recorded December 27th, 2023. I am Ross. And I am Gordon. Hey, man. We both made it through the day. We made it through a couple of days there, yeah. Yeah. So we did have a request for a podcast on guidance for bird photography. And I thought it might be worthwhile to revisit that topic. Uh, yes, and thanks for sending your listeners' email. It's our listener. Our listener. You refer to me as an amateur only something. Ornithologist. Oh, them. Well, that's hardly accurate. I see a bird... I adopt your identification system, bird, and then I go and learn about it after the fact. Yeah, well, you fooled me successfully for <laughs> years. Actually, I look back, and uh, the first episode we did together was number 115 on June 2021. Wow, you really are a glutton for punishment. Apparently. So we didn't actually cover birds, but we did cover some stuff on backyard photography. So yes, now would be a good time to see what, if anything, has changed. All right. What kind of ideas do you have on how we should proceed? Okay. Well, I'll try to organize it a bit so that it's not a complete mess. I tried to group my thoughts into the following categories accepting that there will be some overlap. I came up with bird photography in the wild and backyard bird photography. And to both of these, I kind of stuck in static and birds in fright. Okay, well, why don't we start with photography in the wild and then bring it closer to home? Okay. It's that start at the very beginning thing. So thank you to Miss Andrews again. I really think you've got a thing going with that young lady. I regret that neither of us are young anymore, <laughs> but yes. Yes, okay. So I think I'll just try and cover the principles to avoid things like uh, camera settings and fiddly things that you need to figure out for yourself. Well, I like fundamentals and principles, so let's go there. What are your thoughts on the gear? Well, we want to get the biggest image with the most detail, which translates into a long telephoto. The long reach is king in this category, but with a bit of thought and maneuvering, you can get by with a fairly short focal length. And there are times when too much reach is really a, a hindrance. If you can get your hands on a reliable and effective teleconverter, you can get the reach you need and the flexibility. A cable release. Well, I carry one of those at all times. I don't use a timer on the camera in this situation because my experience has been that you fire the timer and then you sit there and wait, and by the time it goes off, uh, the bird's gone. 
So you want that shutter speed as soon as you pressed the shutter release. And you want it now. And have to admit, ditto with the tripod. But this may be as much of a hindrance as a help. I'm usually a big proponent of using a tripod. So this is kind of strange coming from me. So what is your boggle as it pertains to tripods? Oh, my boggle, okay. Well... Demolition man. <laughs> We're going to get back to the shells in a minute. Yep. Well, most of those flybys hang out in the most awkward places and generally for the least amount of time. So it's entirely possible you'd miss a shot while trying to set up. It's not practical most and mostly unless you're on a tripod waiting for the action to happen. What, like, for example, a, a bird coming back to a nest? Bird coming back to a nest. Frequently with ospreys, you see the, the female in the nest yelling out in a fairly... Aggressive tone? <laughs> tone, yeah. Bring that fish here now. So, uh, yeah, so uh, other than that sort of situation, once you're, set, once you're set up and waiting, that's okay. But very often trying to get into a position can be a problem. What have you learned about putting the image together, say, from a compositional perspective? Well, it starts to get a bit tricky here. It seems that there are two schools of thought. Some photographers advocate filling the frame as much as possible with the bird, or part of the bird. I have heard this referred to as eyeball photographers. Ah, yes, and a big shout out to our friend, Mr. Moose Peterson, who is, where is whom I first heard that phrase. <laughs> well, yes, he's generally right about things. The other camp is the environmental photographer, who strive to show the bird in its environment. And by that I mean eating, hunting, interacting with other birds, or trying to tell the story of the bird. There's no right and no wrong. It's what the photographer thinks is important at the time. And they can switch back and forth between one and the other as the occasion arises. Anything else that's different about bird photography? Not really, except that it should be borne in mind that simplicity is what generally makes the image. The environment that they live in is not simple. There are branches and scrubs and thingies that are designed to clutter the image. And if you can eliminate those, you're already ahead of the game. So, to summarize, one subject, the bird. Mm -hmm. Everything else is ancillary and less important. Great. Okay. What have you found will help you to declutter the image in the case that you find yourself in that situation? I'm going to say focal length of the lens. Or if you think in those terms, the field of view. Your position and the bird's position and the f-stop that you're going to use. But be aware that the sensor and the lens used 
will provide different depths of field, which is uh, another conversation altogether, and it's one that we actually had not very long ago. So you have to get to know your camera and your sensor and how much depth of field you can expect. Using a program before you start your session, uh, like PhotoPills, which gives you an idea of how much depth of field you can expect, will make a big difference to what all you get into focus. Really, I've been quite impressed with how much my 300 f4 on a four-third sensor that lens has the ability to make the environment completely disappear with a little bit of fall planning if you wish okay so that's a good point that you make and for those who are perhaps not familiar with micro four-thirds a 300 millimeter lens on micro four-thirds provides something equivalent in field of view to 600 millimeters on a full frame or so there is a real benefit i think then in the micro four thirds format for bird photography because you can get a lot of reach without a lot of weight oh yes absolutely and of course uh, to go back to the statement i made earlier with a 1.4 teleconverter or a times two teleconverter You've got an insane focal length, and, um, and it sometimes does take you into the realm of having too much reach. Fair enough. So, out of curiosity, then, how hard do you work now to fill this frame? Not particularly hard anymore. I think I know why, but explain why that's the case. Our sensors and resolution in the cameras nowadays are so good that we can crop to pretty much whatever we want in whatever we get. The resizing software that we have available and the denoising software are so good, we can almost get away with, uh, I don't know, I'm going to say blasphemy because we're in this season. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. I can see that. And certainly, as so long as you've got reasonable coverage, you're right. The sensors are amazing. And moreover, most people are just looking at things on their phones and on their screens these days, and those are very low-resolution devices. So few people are making big prints, sadly. So I think your argument there makes sense. But are there any other points that you want to make? It wasn't long after my interest in birds started to grow that I was introduced to the concept of a bird on a stick. This is also known as a static bird image, which is generally, you refer to that as a image that is technically accurate, but generally emotionally bereft. My images were boring. I now actively look for a gesture to add some interest to the image. A woodpecker flicking wood in every direction, a robin pulling a worm out of the ground, that sort of thing. Once I get that, I now have an image with a story and that makes it interesting. Exposure and noise are potential problems because well, I think we've all heard the story of the micro four-thirds and you're shooting in the dark. 
but we're usually metering off a dark area, most of which is background, or the opposite, we're uh, metering off a very light area. And either way, the subject becomes a blob in generally the middle of the photograph. I suggest learning to use the exposure compensation aggressively to expose for the subject. This may cause against a bright background. The bright background will get brighter if it's possible. You may lose detail. If you're looking at a dark area in the trees, exposing that much may give you some more grain or noise if you wish. But those are all correctable through post-processing. Fair enough. Do you have any specific thoughts on exposures? Sure, all the time. But I haven't been able to come out anything really useful yet. I briefly alluded to the problem of the camera light meter and the exposure against dark and bright. And I really cannot stress this enough. Overcompensation to get good exposure of the subject I think is key in these images. People claim that manual is the only way to adjust your test exposures so that the whites are white and not blown. It works, but for me, there are too many variables. Well, if I can interject, the other problem with that is you're now judging based on the JPEG in the camera, even if you're shooting raw. Right. And the rear screen or the electronic viewfinder aren't representing things accurately. So your thoughts of overshooting, overexposing, definitely will give you more recoverability after the fact. You also talked about metering, and this may be one place where learning to use the spot meter function in your camera might help. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. but that takes skill and practice. You don't just turn it on and everything's magical. Because what if the bird is not middle gray? Right. Other schools claim to shoot with a wide open aperture to always get the brightest picture and the fastest shutter. I don't have much to claim it works. So I don't. I don't use it. At this time, I have settled on one of two modes. I shoot shutter priority with auto ISO or I will switch to a manual with auto ISO. So the rational is that the bird is most likely to move a lot. The shutter speed is the parameter that I am going to change the most and the fastest. The auto ISO is the one that I will have to compensate the most. So I may as well let my $3,000 technology do the work. If it can't figure it out, it's unlikely that I will get to uh, produce the results I want in time. Another reason is that on my camera, in shutter priority, one wheel controls the shutter speed, the other controls exposure compensation, and both of these are parameters that I need to change like now. So there's no right answer, just choices. Try it, figure it out, see what works for you. 
Well, you've certainly given some good thought to this subject of birds in flight. So let's carry on. You mentioned at the beginning the topic of backyard photography. What's different there? Ah, yes, backyards. Well, the first thing about backyard photography is don't expect the exotic. But try to make the mundane exceptional. I have started to think of it as a studio for wildlife. There are ample examples of how to build blinds, the kind you hide in, not the kind you can't see. They can be as elaborate or as humble as your pocketbook will permit. Or just buy one. Amazon loves you. More important is the, con is the concept of constructing a landing zone. The aim is to make the image not look like a backyard with a bird feeder or two. Plan for incoming and outgoing birds. Here is where cable release is worthwhile and one has the ability to pre-focus on the landing patterns of the bird after you do a little bird observation. And newer cameras have various computational modes incorporated into the functions of the camera that allow you to capture that absolute exact moment that you're looking for. And lastly, setting up a flash system is easy with off-the-camera flash and a radio trigger. Well, that's a, a good point to bring up because, boy, is there a lot of... Well, there's a lot of chatter on the internet about using flash with birds. Many people believe it is detrimental to the bird. In our research and in my own research as a raptor photographer, I have yet to find a biologist who says, don't do it. And in fact, I've been on a number of raptor shoots with professional ornithologists and I've used flash and asked in advance and they've told me, yeah, it's no problem. However, as you've pointed out at many other occasions, rationality mm. is not common. And how do you put it? Something about other humans? Oh, yes, I said it. In the presence of other humanoids, discretion may be your best friend. The hostiles gather in packs and they can be militant. Which is a very nice way of saying that to many people, facts don't matter. No, they, you know, a fanatic is a fanatic is a fanatic. It just depends on which side of the fence they happen to be sitting on. You talked about using flash and how does flash help both in full flight or in the case of where you set up a landing zone. Well, let's deal with the common one. Setting up a landing zone. The lighting is one of two things. It's either going to be dull and overcast, and you need that fill flash to just provide that little extra kick and provide a little more color, a little more contrast, a little more vibrance to the image. If you do it right, it doesn't look like you use flash. If you're in a situation where you've actually got good lighting, namely you've got sunlight, you've got, but with that comes the harsh shadows, the highlights that are getting blown out. 
the flash in that situation will have will help you to fill in those dark contrasty areas and give you a more uniform image using the birds in flight and that depends on your definition of birds in flight if you're talking about the bird coming in for landing or just taking off same principles apply except you're dealing with a situation where that bird is moving fast and to use your flash effectively you're going to need the flash firing at a fast shutter speed which means that you will have to learn how to use the high speed sync and sort of you're you're going to be shooting in burst mode almost certainly and the flash may not keep up uh, in terms of uh, recharging fast enough to match your frame rate for the images and you might want to adjust your frame rate recognizing you may not get all the shots that you want but so you have to make a balance between the camera firing the flash firing and the bird moving and sometimes it doesn't work talking about birds in full flight well they're generally not within re- range of any kind of a flash so may or may not work you've talked about the backyard photo avoiding the concept of bird on a stick and i support that and you've talked briefly about bird in, birds in flight now when you're photographing a bird in flight do you have any guidance on how best to focus <laughs> when trying to track a bird in flight well i was hoping that we wouldn't go there but okay um there are a couple of points here i know that you are a proponent of just a single focus point that you get on the bird and you track the bird and you keep it there until you finish shooting if you can do that that's fine and it takes a lot of practice what i have heard you say in the past is go find yourself a seagull they move fast they move erratically and well you can find them next to any ice cream or peanut store you can find so there there are a good practice medium continuous focus is a must back button focus i believe if you're not if you're not using back button focus you're missing you're you're missing a major part of this and you can focus with clusters of focus points the clusters may work depending upon where the bird is going depending upon how much of the environment is intruding and you have absolutely no control as to whether it will focus on extraneous objects or on the bird so again there there is no teaching aid that gets you around this issue go out practice uh, back button focus continuous auto focus practice panning tracking the bird and burst shooting 
your results will be awful to start with. They will get better over time. Well, I think those are very good pieces of guidance. Uh, whether you use a single point or group of points is a personal decision, as you say. And the idea, of course, is to make sure that the focus point or points stay on the bird. And then from my perspective, the most critical skill to learn after you figure out how to operate your camera and use things like back button focus is learning how to pan properly, mm -hmm. to pan from the hips, not from mm -hmm. the shoulders. Right. And again, that it's not hard. You just got to practice. And I guess what we haven't talked about is, do you handhold a camera or do you use an ancillary aid? And again, that's a personal choice. Uh, as I get older, I find it harder to hold and pan and the lenses just get heavier with each passing year. And so I have pretty much resorted to using a gimbal head on my tripod. It functions as a static uh, as well as a mobile uh, focusing device, so I don't have to keep changing it. I find that tracking a bird in flight uh, with the gimbal head is somehow not as intuitive as hand-holding it. But again, I believe it's a practice scenario. And when I have got the shot, they are significantly better if I'm on a gimbal head to, to use it. Well, I think that's very good advice. One of the issues that I observe with folks using long lenses for anything is that they then tend to grip the lens far away from their body. Right. And so the elbow, typically the left elbow, is not tucked in tight. Right. And that produces an enormous amount of waver. So if your lens is so long that you can't hold it without extending your elbow forward, then, yeah, a gimbal is huge. Oh, absolutely. There are huge value. And, again, as you say, with some practice, they're suitable for statics and they're suitable for birds in flight. Mm -hmm. When you get to the speed of jet aircraft, maybe not so much, but also those things tend to turn a little less aggressively than your local hummingbird or mm -hmm. flight of the English sparrow. <laughs> well, that's really good, Gordon. I appreciate you taking the time to put your thoughts together based on your long practice expertise in this area. What are a couple of tools that you use after you, let's say you photograph a bird and you don't know what it is, but it's interesting. Are there any tools that you recommend that people use? Yes. The one that I use the most, I've heard other people talked about other programs, I use the Cornell Labs. It's a two-part two program, actually. There's one that goes on your phone, which is called Merlin, which gives you an instantaneous lookup of birds by bird characteristics. Color, size, where seen, when seen. And it gives you a selection of birds, and then you try to make them match. The description of the bird, not that effective out here, but at least it tells you what you have and the basics. Second stage of that is the parent program, for want of a better word, is the desktop or the laptop version, the computer version, which is um, all about birds. And it's much more comprehensive uh, in terms of information. But even there, I find some of the information not 
quite enough sometimes and then I go into the hard print copies of I mean let's let's face it the book may be old the birds are older and they haven't changed a whole lot between one time and another so they generally have better descriptions of bird everything if that's as far as where your interest goes following up on the birds and learning about them it makes it a lot more interesting certainly understanding their biology when they're active when they're dormant when they're coming out is and when they're migrating absolutely because you get yourself in the right spot and there are all kinds of things the one point that i didn't raise is that you should be aware that birds land and take off like an aircraft into the wind so if you know where the wind is coming from you can pretty much anticipate which way the bird is going to go or come from and that gives you a tremendous advantage in in either pre-focusing on the area where you think the bird's going to come in or just being prepared for it so gordon is there any sophisticated technology that any human can use to determine the direction of the wind that would be the finger in the mouth trick yes and you hold it up and whichever side gets cold yep that's where the wind's coming from yeah sorry guys no need to go out and buy <laughs> a kestrel wind meter for this stick your finger in the air <laughs> in your mouth first then <laughs> yes of course Okay, well, thanks, everybody. We appreciate you taking time to listen to this episode. Jeff, I hope it was helpful to you. Jeff is the name of the listener who graciously asked us to spend some time on this subject. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing both to the podcast and to the articles on thephotovideoguy.ca. If you really like the episode, click the link for Buy Me a Coffee, which actually doesn't buy us coffee, but it does help pay for hosting and all that kind of stuff. And if you do shop with B&H Photo Video, please do so through the link on the main page. It does pay a small commission, and it costs you nothing extra to do so. For the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast, I am Ross. I'm Gordon. And we bid you peace. <laughs>